0: Continuing in our new series in the book of Ruth, so we can have God's Word open us up to Ruth, chapter 1, we'll be reading from verse 1 through 18. Ruth, chapter 1, verse 1 through 18. And when you're there, I'll ask that you please rise for the reading of God's Word. Ruth, chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Now this is the word of the Lord. In the days when the judges ruled there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Killian. They were the Paphroditus. Ephratitis from Bethlehem in Judah they went into the country of Moab and remained there but Elimelech the husband of Naomi died and she was left with her two sons these took Moabite wives the name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth they lived there about ten years and both Melon and Kilian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband The Lord, grant you, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. They said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. And Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law. But Ruth clung to her, and she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Lord, this is our prayer and our song, that you would teach us and your truth would prevail over our unbelief. Call us, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, to deeper repentance and deeper faith in Jesus as we hear your word, and it's in his name we pray. Last week, we started our new sermon series in the book of Ruth, and I went back to listen to it. I was so blessed, and I learned so much, and so I wanted to go through it and just lay out some of the key features of the introductory portion as we go into the focus of our text today. You know, the first verse of Ruth is so epic. For some reason, I thought that the 1995 movie Judge Dredd did a play off of this verse for their introduction. But I I found in my research that I was wrong. No, I didn't end up watching the whole movie. But it sounds something so epic. It sounds something that that would begin a, 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 a profound and epic movie. And some of you may disagree that Judge Dredd was not so. But as our story starts, it's one of those beginning pre-introduction to the real introduction, right? And you can almost hear the movie trailer guy's voice in the days when judges ruled there was a famine in the land. And the man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Mohan. He and his wife and his two sons. And then the script would just fade away. There would be a drone shot of the golden fields of barley as it quickly flies over into a transition into a gray and barren field. And there we see standing alone in the distance a man, Elimelech. And we're told that it's a time... Where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And, and, and some of it was egregious and appalling, but some of this was simply a survival mechanism, a, a rational, rationale, a logic, a sensible type of living so that they could survive. And we see that this is also true for who we're supposed to think initially is our main character, Elimelech, as he takes his family out of the Promised Land and into the country of Moab. We also heard from last week that a famine in the Old Testament is often a sign for the people to repent and turn to God. Yet, here, Elimelech, who resides in Bethlehem, which ironically means the house of bread, seeks bread elsewhere. And you can almost hear him thinking, if God isn't going to provide what I need, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to find a way, and I'm going to take care of what i got to do. How many of us can relate to that mentality as we often and so easily get tired of waiting on the Lord? We see a progression of a furthering away from the Lord. If you look with me here, we're told that first initially they sojourned in verse 1. Then they remained in verse 2. And then as verse 4 tells us, they lived in the land of Moab 10 years. So what began as a sojourning, a drifting, turned into a a remaining, a lingering, and ultimately a, a settling down and living in this far country of Moab. here we see it's not just a geographical fact, but it's also paralleling how Elimelech drifted and took his family and went far from the Lord. Now some of us may be a bit frustrated at this notion because it's, it's easy to assume that Elimelech was simply doing what any good husband or father would do. There was a famine in the land, and he took his family for a chance to survive in a different land. However, we have to know the surrounding context to understand that this wasn't simply a choice of surviving. This isn't a simple choice of doing what he thought was best. But in the broader context, it was a matter of calling and faithfulness. A pastor and commentator, Ian Dugood, points out that that God had delivered his people from Egypt and brought them to the land of Canaan as a special place for them to live. And so if you look up, here are some reasons that Ian Duguid points out why this is such a significant issue and the problem. To our eyes, it may just seem like a man taking his family to survive and doing whatever they can. But he points out that Elimelech was actually called to live in Bethlehem. It was a matter of faithfulness and calling. His geographical location or area of habitation was a matter of of obedience and trust and waiting on the Lord. And so we see as he departs this, it's not just a a simple, logical choice to survive. It's a departing from that tough waiting on the Lord. Ian Duguid also points out that the king of Moab hired Balaam to curse Israel during the time of Exodus out of Egypt that the, the Moabite women were a stumbling block to the people of Israel in the wilderness that so they seduced them to worship other gods. He also points out that during the days of Eglon, the Moabites actually oppressed Israel. So we see that in the surrounding context that Elimelech, a man of Bethlehem and Judah, who was called and brought there by God, had no business leaving that place and going to, of all places, the land, the country of Moab. But he does. Elimelech and his family find that the land that seemed greener from the other side of the fence of Bethlehem was much more barren and desolate than they could ever imagine. We see in the first five verses the death of this man, Elimelech, his two sons, and we're told that Naomi was left without, left without anything, left without her sons, her husband, and only with her daughters-in-law. You could almost say that he he thought he, he knew what the right decision was. He thought he was making the best choice. But in that tough period of waiting on the Lord, he shouldn't have departed. He once was lost in darkest night, yet thought he knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led him to the grave. And as noted last week, this should be the end of the story. This should be the last words, and it should be done. But as we go into the focus of our text today, as we look at verse 6 and 18, we see that this is not the case. Though verse 5 seems to be an obvious and tragic ending, look with me. Verse 6 begins with, Then she arose. Then she arose. And you'll see on the screen, Then she arose. And in the Hebrew here, the first word of verse 6 is a verb. And it's a verb that says that she arose or she stood, kum. Leon Morris, a commentator, commentator, suggests that this word is used to indicate a commencement of action, especially from a journey. So the RSV would translate this word, the beginning of verse 6, as then she started. This was the beginning of a new journey, arising up, a turning point, a returning to the Lord. Where where verse 5 should have been the ending of that story, we see verse 6 picks up now with this woman rising up, standing, turning, and beginning this new journey. And therefore now we see the actual start of our story. Boom! Title shot. Ruth! as it slowly fades away like barley. And our story begins. And now we're here just waiting with so much anticipation of what can possibly happen for this story and this situation to turn around. You know, the Hebrew language is is so rich and and deep. It's poetic. It's flavorful and and diverse in meaning depending on the context. And it's it's similar, for those who know, uh, the Korean language. I remember saying something one time in Korean, only to have people around me laugh and snicker. They said that the phrase I used was often used in scandalous or inappropriate contexts. So I apologize, and uh, I vowed never to speak Korean again. <laughs> this this word kum, this, this, this understanding of rising up, is not simply... Oh, um, all right, now I'm just going to go back. It's, 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 it, there's, there's a depth to it. I suppose in the English language you can find some parallels. For example, if I were lazy and I was just marinating in my bed all morning, my wife and my kids would come up and they'd say, Get up! Get up, Dad! However, if I were knighted, one would say, Arise. Sir Walton of Lansdale. Kum. Kum. Arise. It's not simply get up. It's not simply pick yourself up from your bootstrap. It's not simply try harder, start again. It's a coom. It's a arise. It's a begin now this new journey of turning. If we were singing praise songs, we would say coom. Now is the time to worship. We'd say kum. Now is the time to give your heart. Kum. It almost sounds better. Someone should make a suggestion for the praise team to uh, go with kum instead of come now. And I don't know what's worse, dad jokes or pastor jokes. But we're told here that Naomi... Arises. She starts a new beginning. Why? Because she has heard that the Lord had visited his people and given them food in Bethlehem. Even this phrase, the Lord visiting his people, is is packed with so much flavor and context. We won't go there, but the Lord visited his people, and as Naomi is in the fields of Moab, she hears of this news. The Lord has visited His people. And even though she is still bitter and lost, she comes. She rises. Naomi may not yet know the significance of her actions, but she will come to find the Lord's faithfulness as she begins her journey back. As Naomi prepares to go back home, she is concerned, obviously, of these two women that her sons have married and left widowed. And so she turns to her daughters-in-law with with hopes that they would have a better life than she has now. She urges them to return to their mother's house, even to remarry and to live a full life. She says, go. Basically says, I have nothing to offer you. Go. Go back. We're told that they lifted up their voices and they wept here on the road. Orpah and Ruth replies, however, to Naomi, Naomi. No, we will return with you to your people. And Naomi urges them again in verse 11, Turn back, return. And explains that there is no hope if they follow her, that the road that she is going to in some ways is empty. Excuse me. I better go get tested. I'm just kidding. Too soon. I shouldn't joke around. I'm sorry. Lord, bring us back. Lord, bring us back. I'm sorry. <laughs> but Naomi pushes back again. It's not settled. She says, go back. Return. Go, go back to your mother's house. Live a full life. Have a better life than me. And this term return or, or turning back is used eight times. Eight times in verses 1 through 18. This term is used eight different times. But the question is, what will they turn back to? Will Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth simply turn back to what they know? What seems most logical? What seems mo- more most sensible? Or will they turn back To the Lord who visits His people as they repent and turn back during a time of famine to provide for them once more. With all this call and urging of return and turn back, the question is where will they turn back? To who will they return to? Perhaps that is the question that presses on us today in some ways. Naomi, in her bitterness, is simply turning back to what she knows. Yes, perhaps there is some hope that as she turns back, of hearing the good news of the Lord visiting the people, that she might be taken care of as well. But in her bitterness, also perhaps this is all she knows. She says, why not? She turns back. And similarly, she urges Orpah and Ruth to do the same. What happens after the second plea? They lift up their voices once more and they weep. This is, this is such a heavy and sad moment. These, these, these women are lost and they're trying to figure out how to move forward. So verse 14 tells us, as simply as it can, Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Orpah kissed her mother-in-law but Ruth clung to her. And we can tell from the context and the ways that this is phrased that Orpah kissed her mother-in-law to return back to what she knew. But Ruth clung to her. Of all these usage of return, turn back, return, turn back, return, turn back, it stops here with Ruth. She clings. There's no more there's no more which way should I turn back, which way should I return? There is now a settling, a determination, and a clinging. Ruth clung to her. Ruth clings. Ian Duguid mentions this about Orpah, and I have it quoted here. Orpah looked her situation and life clearly in the face and made the necessary decisions by using exactly the same logic that Naomi had followed earlier. The fields of Moab looked far greener than the land of Israel. With that simple, sensible choice, she marched off, out of the pages of the Bible. She went back to her people and back to her gods. The world's wise choice to avoid emptiness meaning the mysteries and the unknowns of what God may provide. The world's wise choice to avoid emptiness leads in the end to a different kind of oblivion. Now, I do want to note that there is nothing wrong with logical and sensible decision-making. However, if we find ourselves on a fork in the road and it's between... The mystery of God and being faithful and trusting in him or the worldly logic that promises that so long as we do this, we can survive, then we are to walk by faith. Not every decision is a matter of faith and calling. You can decide what you want to eat for breakfast. You can decide what you want to eat for lunch. You can decide to live here and there. But if the Spirit has pressed on your life a sense of calling specific to what is happening and you feel that the Lord is calling you to X, Y, and Z, and when that calling and that faithfulness is tested as you arrive on that fork in the road, then, brother or sister, friends, will you choose to walk by faith and not by sight? Will you choose to come, to arise, to return to Him and cling to Him? Cling to him. Unfortunately, there's not much more that can be said about Orpah. But what of Ruth? We're told that Ruth clung to her. What does this mean? If you look here in Ruth 1, 16-17, let me read for us once more. Ruth's reply as she clings unto Naomi. She says this. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord, may Yahweh, she, she, she uses the personal, relational name of God. May the Lord, may Yahweh do to me, and more also, if anything, but death me from you. We see Ruth does more than simply cling to her mother-in-law Naomi. This is more than a scene of loyalty. Ruth here uses covenantal language to unite herself to Naomi. It's almost a reaffirmation of I didn't just marry your son, I married into your family. And I'm clinging on to you. The term "cling" here is also used in the context of marriage, what we may often recognize as leaving and cleaving. <laughs> to leave your parents, to leave the world you knew, and to cleave onto your spouse. And she's using this language. She says that your people will be my people. Your God shall be my God. Where you die, I will die and I will be buried with you also. And she vows this in the personal name of God. She she vows this to Yahweh. You see, Ruth doesn't simply cling on to Naomi. This isn't simple loyalty between two humans. She ultimately clings on to God. So so we see a a progression back. In the beginning, we see that they they sojourn, right? Right? And they remained, and then they lived. And now here Ruth is almost going back, as she says, I married not just my husband, but I married into the family. And I didn't just marry into this family. I married and I accepted Yahweh as my own God. Some have said that this is Ruth's conversion or even confirmation moment. All that she had learned and witnessed as she was the wife of a, of, of a man, an epaphrodite man, a covenant people of God, now she takes as her own. She affirms that Yahweh is her personal Savior in her present situation, no matter how difficult it may be, against all logic, against all sensibility. In one sense, she's stupid but she's trusting in Yahweh. I want to give us some points of application and implications here as we close. First, friends, there is a call here as we look at God's Word to arise, to come, and return to Him. Perhaps some of us are far from the Lord. And even any given week, let me confess to you, there, that there are days within a 24-hour span, I can run so far from the Lord. But praise God. by His grace, often it takes some moments and minutes in prayer to return back to him. Some of you may feel far from the Lord. just as Naomi and her family sojourn and remain and lived, Somewhere in that far country of Moab, perhaps it started out as a drifting, then a lingering, then a sense of permanence that you can't escape. What started out as a drifting, a staying, now comes with a sense of being stuck. Perhaps some of you feel in a land, in a place in your life that's more barren and desolate. What seemed greener from that other side As you ran after those things that promised joy in life, seems that it has only led you to the grave. If that is you, brother and sister, friend, come, arise. No matter how hopeless it may be, your story, your life, is written in the pages of God's book. There is a new beginning. We've talked about when you come to Christ, you are a new creation. No matter how bleak verse 5 of your life may be, verse 6, as you obey perhaps the call this morning to arise and come, it could be a new beginning, a hopeful beginning. Just as the Lord had visited His people in Bethlehem and gave them food, and this news gave hope, even if it was a glimmer to Naomi to return, brothers and sisters, let me remind you that the Lord has visited His people in the flesh as Jesus the Christ, the Redeemer, who was also born in Bethlehem in the town of Judah. And He then journeyed as far as you may have gone to offer you bread of life, that you may find a new beginning by turning to Him, by being satisfied in Him, by trusting and following. Friends, arise. No matter how deep and muck and mire your feet may be. Arise and return to Him. Second point of application. God is God. And we are His workmen. What do I mean by that? God is God. And you and I are just simply His workmen. How many times have we felt utterly lacking And providing for those around us. Much like Naomi, she sees her situation. She has nothing. She is left without. And she looks at her two daughters-in-law and she says, go back to your old life. Go back to your mother's house. Find the husband, marry, raise children, be happy, live a full life. Go and raise chickens or something. Naomi feels that she has nothing to offer. And it goes to show, even though she has risen and plans to go back to Bethlehem, that she, in her bitterness, still can't fully trust God. If there was a deep sense of faith and trusting, she would say, My daughters-in-law, come with me. The Lord has visited his people in my land. And so she urges her her, her daughters-in-law to go. And how many times have, have, we have, felt, have we felt so lacking, left without, to offer someone who is struggling encouragement, either by words or lack thereof? Now, those in our care can't receive much help from us, and so then we just we encourage them to get yours. Just do you. Go get it try harder you can do this what seems as a, as a positive encouraging word is empty I mean it's ironic because in, in those moments how often do we feel that the gosp, gospel is so empty that if someone were share to us a tragic event in their life for us to say do you trust and turn to Jesus it feels so stupid feel so unsensible, feel so empty. Yet how much hope and power is there when we turn to Yahweh, to God, to Jesus, the one who has visited his people, you and I. You know, I know as parents we think the best thing to do for our children is to give them the best education and chance at at a successful life. But perhaps there is a challenge here even for us to rear our children in the Lord so that even when the world doesn't deliver on all its promises, even when they don't get into the college they want to, the internship program, the job, the career, the spouse, the home, that your kids can turn to the one who keeps all his promises, to turn to the one who provides every good and perfect gift, to turn to the one who has written all the days of their lives in his book of life. So let me remind us, This morning, if you are walking with someone who is struggling and suffering, and the Lord gives you an opportunity to share the message of hope of Jesus, go in there. Share that hope. Philippians 4.19 says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul writes to the Philippian church, Having received so much, he doesn't say, I don't know how I'm going to pay you back. I have nothing. He says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches that are in Christ Jesus. Don't ever feel like you don't have anything to offer someone who is struggling when you have the good news of Jesus. The Redeemer. Third and final, cling to Clinging to God isn't always logical or sensible in the world's eyes. Clinging to God isn't always logical or sensible. Orpa made the sensible choice of turning back to her mother's house, and perhaps she found a husband there. Perhaps she did have a good life. However, husbands and houses may keep you safe, but they cannot redeem your soul. We know only Jesus can do that to the world's eyes, to trust in Jesus, to trust in God in some circumstances, perhaps as we find ourselves in today, is silly. It's not sensible. And that's why we're called to live by faith in the One who is able to do all things. To live by faith, trusting in the One who can provide and supply for all of our needs according to His riches in Christ Jesus. Cling on to God. Cling on to Jesus. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be His than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. Yes, I'd rather be led by His nail-pierced hands than to be a king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Cling on to the Redeemer. When everything has rusted, when the mobs have eaten their fill, and when the world has robbed you of all that you have acquired in your days of youth, and ultimately on that last day, even your life, will you have life beyond that? Will all your treasures be in Jesus? Wherever you may be in your soul journey, no matter how dim, dark, or dreary your situation may seem, there is a new beginning for those who come to the Lord, for those who turn to Him, for those who cling to Him. The call is to lay down everything, to simply trust and follow. Friends, will you meditate this on the days to come and the rest of today? to arise, to turn back, to cling to Him, for He is faithful. Let's spend some time in prayer.